Our kids have got uh, kids church, so the meeting outside. Yep. Just follow, just follow, follow the leader. And uh, at the end of our time here, uh, we have time of uh, fellowship. Uh, tea and coffee is just out there. Just walk outside, and there's uh, there's a known tea and coffee. Hang around, and have let's have some fellowship. For such a time as this, from Esther chapter 4 and verses 1 to 17. So we have just concluded a series in the book of of Daniel. It took us uh, 15 weeks uh, broken up, but it took us a total of 15 weeks to get through the book of Daniel. We could have spent certainly a lot more time, but we would try to capture the, the essence of what the story is about. So this morning I would like to go to the book of of Esther, which uh, covers a similar historical period as the time of Daniel. Now we're not going to do the whole book, I'm going to give you a summary, and we're just going to look at this one chapter, which I believe is the central part that encapsulates what the story, the essence of the book is about. There are a couple of peculiar things to draw your attention regarding this book. Although there are many prominent women in the Bible, there are only two books in the Bible that are named after women. They are Ruth and Esther. And there are only two books in the Bible where the name of God does not appear. Esther and Song of Songs. So why isn't God's name in them? And because of this, the fact that God's name doesn't appear in these couple of books, some have said, well, they shouldn't be in the Bible. They should have been in the canon, included in the canon of Scripture. And there has been, you know, back and forth and, and all of this, but they are in our, our Bible. They are in our Scriptures. And why, is, why isn't God's name in these books? Well, because God didn't want them in there is the short answer. And probably the final answer. So whatever argument you have, you're always going to end up in that. The narrative here has all the elements necessary for a great story. There is drama, there is suspense, there is romance, there is murder, jealousy, anger, all of that. There are heroes and villains, powerful and weak, rich and poor. And as with any good story, there is a happy ending. It is one of the most interesting and yet underrated books in the Bible because many people have never read it. Let me try and give you an abridged version of the story and then draw some some principles as we go along and then certainly towards the end. So this is the, the story It is the story of four major characters, the king, Haman, the prime minister, Esther, and Esther's righteous cousin called Mordecai. But behind it all is the invisible hand of God directing and guiding his people in order to protect them. 
This is how the story goes. Once upon a time, there was a rich and powerful king. But he was lonely. No, sorry, that's not really... He wasn't really lonely, okay? But he was very powerful. And he ruled a vast kingdom from what is now uh, Ethiopia all the way to India. Huge empire. And at this time, the Persian Empire controlled what, I suppose, what would have been half the then known world. The Ahasuerus uh, of the Book of Esther, that's what in, in chapter 1, his, this king is called Ahasuerus, is also known in secular history as Xerxes the Great, king of Persia from 485 BC to 465 BC. So he reigned, he was on the throne for about 20 years. His father was Darius, who was spoken of in the book of Daniel that we looked at. So he is famous for his expedition against the Spartans. Remember that 300, that movie? That's what it tells you about that battle. And then he did well then. You know, he only, was only had to defeat 300 Spartans, right? But then he came up, he couldn't match the, Greek, the Greeks who were the ascending empire and uh, he lost a great uh, battle, the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC. That was a, it was one of the great battles in ancient history. It was a naval battle. But he didn't do too well there. But here, maybe trying to suggest his defeat to the Greeks or whatever, he's still in power. There, there is this, this big party, and chapter 1 tells you about that, where, where the emperor aims... For about 180 days, he's aiming to have an exhibition for everyone to see about, and, and tell everybody how great he is and his empire. But not only that, there was a particular period for about, that was going to go for a week where <coughs> everything was going to be brought together and the, and the masterpiece, the one that he really wanted to show everybody to show off was his wife. Queen Vashti. But she was having nothing of it. She didn't want to be part of it. No, no, you can have your party. You can, I'm, not, I'm not going, okay? So, out goes one queen, and we have to look for another one. The king of Persia is providentially introduced to Esther, a young, beautiful Jewish maiden. He falls head over heels for her because she is more beautiful than any woman he had ever seen. And he asks her to become queen. And soon after she becomes queen, Esther's cousin Mordecai, who brought her up, uncovers a conspiracy to kill the king, King Xerxes. So he informs Esther, who in turn warns the king about this plot and the, the men involved in the plot are put to death. Then comes the prime minister, Haman. Haman is second in command to the king. He is a descendant of the Amalekites, an old enemy of Israel. 
from about, if you need to read your story in the Old Testament, from about 500 years before. And uh, if you want to know a little bit, just give, give a little bit of summary about the Amalekites. He, they were the people that God told Saul to go and annihilate. But Saul spared them. Disobedience. So Saul was then said, no, nah, we've got to find a new king. And therefore David came into the scene. So the history between the Amalekites and the Israelites goes way back. He's, Haman is an ambitious man who is hungry for power and prestige. He demands to be honoured by the people of Persia and all of the peoples who are under control under the Persian Empire. But Mordecai a Jew who knows his history would not bow down or pay him honour. So Mordecai is asked why he wouldn't bow down to Haman and he simply replies, I am a Jew. In a fit of anger, Haman convinces the king to issue a decree to have all the Jews throughout the empire to be put to death. All of them. Pretty tough when you're upset with just one man and then want to wipe out his entire race. There have been a few attempts at the final solution since then, haven't they? But there's a story here. There's history here, like I told you, between the Amalekites. And, the, and I think that's, this is what was triggering Haman as well. So this gripe between the Jews and other nations goes back a while. How far does it go? Well, I think it goes back all the way to Genesis 3.15. What does it say there? It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Who is you? The snake, Satan. And the woman... Descendants and her descendants, the descendants of Eve, and between your offspring and hers, the children of Satan, the children of the devil, and the children of God's chosen race, God's people. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And since then, Satan has always been striking at the heel. Of God's people. Israel, God's church, God's followers. But the promised Messiah will crush his head. And here, if Satan succeeded, if, Hayton, if, if Satan through Haman succeeded in annihilating the Jewish race, there would be no Jews, there would be no Messiah, there would be no Jesus, there would be no salvation. So this fight between good and evil is highlighted here. Haman, in a fit of rage, orders that some gallows, gallows are where you hang people from, to be built to hang Mordecai. And upon hearing the decree of what was going to happen, 
the Jews all across the empire began fasting, all across the empire. So this is not just around Susa and around Persia, which is today Iran, but all across. This will go back all the way to Jerusalem, everywhere, because all the Jews, this is genocide, this is anti-Semitism at its worst, which is what Hitler tried to do, right? Everybody be put to death. So Mordecai goes to Esther and convinces her to try and get the king to change his mind. But this is not as easy as it seems. You don't have ready access to the, to the king, just like, you know, he's your husband, just go talk to him. No one, not even the queen, can approach the king without an invitation. Right? Try this in your home, see how it works with your husband. Right? You may come. That'll be fun, right? Try it for a day and see how your marriage goes. (laughs) Different context, okay? If Esther approached the king without being summoned, she could likely be put to death. The only exception would be if the king extended the golden scepter towards her. What is a version of the golden scepter today? Well, maybe the remote control for the TV, right? That's an equivalent. So she decides to approach the king as it would be better for her to die than to allow such a a terrible thing to happen to her, her people, the Jewish people. And I think this is an important principle here because you see the value you place on your life is often relative to the challenge before us, before you, and the significance of the event, not just for you, but for others around you, in your community, in your family, your church. Is it really important what I'm about to do? How worthwhile and significant in the long term, is the cause. What is the risk and the ultimate cost? This is why people sign up for the army to go and fight. Sometimes in places far away from their own country in order to protect the innocent, in order to to fight for those who cannot defend themselves, to protect refugees and, and others. Yes, and sometimes when our own country is under threat, people sign up. This is what happened in the First World War, Second World War, Vietnam. And yes, and yes, many have paid the ultimate price. Just in uh, in April this year, I was in I was in Gallipoli. I was part of the the service, the dawn service right there. And you could sense, the, you could feel, you could understand, you see all the graves and everything. You go through all the sites of this, this battle that, yeah, that we lost. But yet the result, 100, 100 years down the track, you can see it. So what is the value that you put upon your life? What is something worth fighting for? And historians with a 
in front of, uh, you know, desktop warriors. They can argue all the back and forth about was it right, was it wrong, should we, shouldn't have we. And it goes on and on, doesn't it? Few people in their right mind would give their life for their house or their invest or their investments, I suppose. And yet some have taken their lives for things far worse, far less than this. You know, somebody insulted them on social media and they go and take their life. Really? Is that all that your life was worth? Somebody said something nasty to you? That's been the case with me. I would have taken my life a hundred times already. And that's just this year. You can't live like that. You can't live your life according to people's opinion of you. There is one opinion that matters and that is you're standing before God. That's the one that really matters. Anyway, for three days, Esther, Mordecai and all the Jews in the land, they fasted and they prayed. This was an intense time. This was really, really worth praying for. On the third day, so Esther tells them, please pray for me. Let's all pray. Let's all fast and pray. Get everybody together. So Esther entered the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall and and waited for the king to respond. Would he extend the scepter? And I'm sure she was relieved when she watched her husband extend the golden scepter. And as she approached, the king's love for her was evident. And he says, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even half my kingdom, it will be given you. This is, this is a... Quite an exaggeration, okay? It's, it's like, right, it's a Middle Eastern thing as well, that you've got to go way over the, the top. But, but he probably meant it as well. It's a bit like a kid asking dad for some money for the train, and, he's, and he says, well, just take the Ferrari in the garage. Just take it. You can keep it. You know, that type of thing, right? Okay. That's the type of response here. Even half my kingdom. But you see, she was going to make this opportunity count because there was a lot at stake. And Esther knew a secret that the best way to a man's heart is, is through his stomach, right? And all Esther asked is for the king and Haman to have lunch with her. At lunch, the king again asked Esther what she wanted. And the intelligent woman Wise woman that she is, Esther invites the king and Haman to have supper the next day. Haman, you know, feels very privileged that he's invited to this private dinner. He runs to his friends and boasts about being invited to have supper with the king and queen. And as he tells his his buddies how important he is, Haman notices Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. And Haman just, you know... He burns with, with hatred towards Mordecai, the guy who wouldn't bow to him 
and decides to build a gallows 70 feet high and ask the king to have Mordecai hang in the morning. But that night, that very night, the king can't sleep. After tossing and turning for hours, the king orders the book of Chronicles, the book of not the biblical chronicles, but the chronicles, the history of his life, his empire, his achievements, the record of, of the things that he's done be read to him. That's what everybody needs, isn't it? Okay, Pastor Paul, now your life's achievements will be read to you. Here comes the first reader, there comes the second one. It'll be a very short reading. (laughs) But not for Xerxes, right? It sort of went on and on. And somebody recorded all this stuff. And uh, he discovers discovers that there is an event that doesn't quite add up. He listens to all that has happened during his reign and all the conquests and all the glory he has attained and he's reminded of the time that Mordecai uncovered a plot to have him killed. And the king realizes that Mordecai has never been rewarded for his faithfulness. The next morning after Haman approaches the king, before Haman can say anything, the king asks him, what should be done for the man the, the king delights to honour. And Haman immediately thought that the king was talking about him, you see. So he tells the king that he should put a, a royal robe around the man and carry him through the city, through the city streets on this big horse. And then, you know, this guy thought he was him. But to his astonishment, the king tells Haman to go get Mordecai and place the royal robe on him and take him through the city, proclaiming what a wonderful man he is. You can imagine how Haman felt. What an embarrassment for the guy that he hated. That night at supper, Esther finally tells the king about the plot to kill all the Jews and ask the king to spare her people. The king is furious that someone would trick him into making such a decree in the first place. He demands to know who did it. Esther tells him that it was Haman. The king becomes so angry that he storms out of the banquet. Haman realizes that he is in deep trouble, so he turns to Esther and begs for his life. Just then the king comes back and sees Haman wrapped around Esther's legs, you know, begging for, for life in the ultimate irony The king has Haman hung on the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai. The Jews are saved. And toward the end of this book, a yearly festival is celebrated in honour of Esther called the Festival of Purim, which is celebrated about, about a month before Passover every year. Here are some lessons that we can learn from this story. Firstly, don't forget 
who God is. Who do you think made the king sleepless in the palace that night? Who was it? Who gifted Esther with incredible beauty? Who made everything fall into place so that Esther and Mordecai are placed in the halls of a foreign power, just like Daniel and his friends years before? The devil is always trying to guess, to to second guess what God is going to do next on the chessboard to outplay God. But he can't keep up. In the end, it's just not fair. There are countless passages in the Bible about the sovereignty of God, even in the smallest things, insignificant, that, but God in his sovereignty adds all these things together so that his glory is revealed in the end. Psalm 37 verses 12 to 15. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. That's what gnashing the teeth is. But the Lord laughs at the wicked. He laughs. For he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose ways are upright. But their swords will pierce their own hearts and their bows will be broken. And that's exactly what happened here, right? Evil Haman was hanged from the very gallows he built for Mordecai. We serve an all-powerful, all-knowing God. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. And even though God's name is not in the book, the golden thread of his sovereign power is everywhere. In the same way, we need to understand and know and believe and trust that God knows our situation today, whatever it is you might be going through. He's already doing the work that is needed in your life and mine because he's building all of that towards a purpose to make us like his son. None of your trials, none of your despair, none of the things that you're going through is wasted in God's economy. In fact, the suffering is part of the ingredients that is going to bring forth the glory. That's what the Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians. Have confidence in that fact that he's still in control. He knows what he's doing. Secondly is don't forget who you are. So I think this is the second lesson from from Esther is that remember whose you, we are. We are God's people. Esther could have ignored and denied who she was. 
She was in a privileged position and in, in no danger of death at this point. The Jews were the ones who would be put to death because up to now the king did not know that she was a Jew. Maybe she could have thought, well, if I just keep silent, I should be spared, I'll be right. And, and self-preservation is always a strong motivation, isn't it? Don't do anything. Don't say anything. Just shut up. You'll be right. Don't speak up for the downtrodden. Don't get involved. Self-preservation. It's always a strong motivation. Look after yourself first. Think of yourself first and foremost. But what about doing what's right? Doing what's right means getting involved sometimes, even when you know it's going to hurt, even when some things could jeopardise your future in the company, I don't know, in society. And and her uncle, her uncle, her wise uncle Mordecai reminds her in chapter 4, verse 13, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Don't think that. Don't think that you get, you know, this is not the time for self-preservation. Good thing is that she listened to him and resolved to do something about it and risking her life in doing so. She recognised that she was part of God's people. She was God's child. She had a privilege, but that privilege came with responsibilities. It wasn't just about being all beautiful and dolled up and, and just being pretty and having a, you know, everybody admire your beauty. It was much, much more serious than that. In the end, being the Queen of Persia was a secondary title. She was part of God's people. And she was needed. Do you consider your privileged position being God's son and daughter? The Apostle Paul tells us, we have received the spirit of adoption where we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. What a privilege that is, right? All of this is, is yours, the, the, the kingdom, because we are part of it. God has, has given it to us through Jesus Christ. We've earned nothing of it, but it is a gift to be part of God's family. What a privilege. But don't forget whose you are. And thirdly, learn to trust God. For times such as this, it is essential that we learn to trust God. And you only learn to trust God through the difficulties. I wonder how Mordecai felt. He had uncovered a plot years earlier to kill the king 
He saved the king's life, yet he didn't receive a single thank you card. No gift voucher, nothing. The same thing happened to Joseph. Remember? He interpreted the dreams of two fellow prisoners back in Genesis. And and he was still stuck in prison and for a long time one of them died and the other one was promoted. He was, you know, in the king's, in the pharaoh's palace. He had power, position, approach, all of that. He could have done something. Yet he did nothing. And there was Joseph, stuck in jail. Long time passed before he remembered the guy in the palace remembered Joseph. In a similar situation, I suppose we could all become bitter and not bother doing anyone any favours because we think, what good would it do? But trusting God means doing the right thing and leaving the results, the outcome, the consequences or any rewards, whatever, to God. You're not going to hurry the process. You're simply going to leave it and trust in God's hands that he knows what he's doing. Eventually, the good thing is that eventually the king realized that Mordecai had not been thanked properly. It was God who, you know, made him suffer some insomnia. He couldn't sleep that night. He hadn't been thanked and he turned out to be the best thing at the best time, at the right time, because God knows the timing of things. That was the time that he needed to be reminded. Because Haman planned to kill not only Mordecai, but annihilate the Jews. And at the end of the book of Esther, Mordecai is placed in a position of, in the very position that Haman once had, second in command to the king. You know, and unlike the, unlike the king of Persia, God remembers his promises. God doesn't. Slumber, he doesn't sleep, he's not forgetful, he doesn't suffer from dementia. God knows, God remembers, but God has his time when he will respond. He is aware of your faithfulness. He knows this struggle that you experience and he keeps his promises and he will never fail you nor forsake you. And if you're probably wondering where God is right now, understand that he is right there with you, holding you up. And and the author of Hebrews said these words to, to some people who were under persecution, under severe persecution in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. This is what we read. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. 
We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Don't give up. Don't despair. Don't give up. Keep going. Because whatever you do, God doesn't forget. He knows. He knows the love that you have shown him and the love that he has shown his people. Continue to help them. doesn't matter whether the people say thank you or not, whether you get a thank you card, recognition. It's irrelevant. You're doing it for him. And fourthly, fulfill his promises. Once we understand who God is, who we are, and that we can trust him, we need to be engaged in his work. And to do this, there are some things we must be willing to let go of. One of those is the self, the need for, like I said before, the self-preservation, to have our needs satisfied. And that we have to feel good about everything that we that God tells us to do. It's not always going to be the case, is it? A mother is not always feeling joy or a dad feeling joy when you have to clean the dirty nappies from your child. There are different things that you just have to do. You grin and bear it, I suppose. And some of the the people that sometimes you want to help, they can be difficult. Even some of the people we work for, the people we work with. And where is God in all of this? Well, we've got to let go of our need to be in control of every situation. We've got to stop telling God when it is convenient to serve him. I'm busy now, God. Please, you know, like Moses said, go and find somebody else to lead your people. It's just not convenient at this moment, right? It's not the right moment of my life. But Esther's strong resolve is a highlight when she said, I will go to the king even though it is against the law and if I perish, I perish, right? Like a soldier signing up for for the army, right? So there's a disclaimer, you could actually die. What? Nobody told me that! Part of the deal, right? So what does it matter if you get involved or not? Well, it actually matters greatly because it shows what's in your heart. Yes, it's true that God has other ways. He can use other people, if he has to, to accomplish his purposes. So Mordecai challenged Esther when he says, if you, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Get that? If you don't do anything now, God, God will find a... a 
Even though his name is not mentioned, God will find another way. He always does. And I suppose, yes, God has other ways, other means, other people he can use. He doesn't have to even use people. He can do everything himself. But he gives us the privilege to join him in his enterprise. That's why he calls us. That's why he gives us talents and gifts in his kingdom to be used for his glory. He isn't frustrated or restrained because you and I may be indifferent. The ones that lose out are us, not God. He's not going to lose out. But it's you. You're not fulfilling his purposes. Therefore, your own significance in how you understand your own place in things becomes diminished. You say, well, what can I possibly do? Well, you can do lots. In his name, for his glory, as long as you're not seeking your own, you can do much. And I think this is important, especially in the times in which we live. Mordecai's words to Esther, I think, is is a key challenge in this whole book. When Mordecai says to Esther, who knows but that you have come to your position for such a time as this. In other words, Esther... Paul, Mary, whoever you are, God has placed you where you are not just to enjoy personal benefits and to be dulled up every morning, but for his purposes in this time. He doesn't call you to live in the past, in the past history, but he calls you to live in the now. This is your responsibility. This is your time. Why are you positioned where you are, where you work, where you live, where you study, where you worship? You are where you are and you do what you do because God has assigned you there in the here and now for such a time as this. And this is the time that God has called us to live in. This is our time when we live for his glory. Not yesterday, we think about tomorrow, but this is the time that God has given us. May we serve him for such a time as this. Amen.